welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We gather like this every weekend on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. Uh, Our engineer is Alan Dempsey. You all know Alan Dempsey. He does many things, wears many hats. Andrew Herdliska does the producing. And uh, Than Bennett is with us uh, here in this first segment. His new book is out, My Fame, His Fame, Aiming Your Life at Influence Toward the Glory of God. Than, welcome. How are you? Pat, I'm doing great. It's a real honor to be with you. I've taken a lot of encouragement from your life story, so it's an honor to speak with you. Well, thank you, Than. Uh, what's the background of your book? Yeah, the book, uh, My Fame, His Fame. I mean, honestly, Pat, I saw what I think probably a lot of people see, and it was a, a broken world around me. And uh, if I'm really candid with you, I saw a lot of that same brokenness in me. And I wanted to do something about it, and it drew me to the Old Testament story of Habakkuk. Now, maybe some of your listeners know about Habakkuk. Maybe maybe they don't, but he is an Old Testament prophet who doesn't get a lot of attention. But he lived, Pat, in times that I think are a lot like the times that you and I are living in. There were times where uh, the righteous were being afflicted and where injustice was often triumphing over justice. And Habakkuk was, um, let's say he was anything but steadfast and fervent. He wasn't your typical prophet who was uh, just pious and reverent. In fact, uh, he had the audacity to confront God about the problems that he was seeing. And to be real candid about it, he blamed God for the problems that were going on, and he asked where God was. And, Pat, there were a couple of things that happened when Habakkuk confronted God that really startled me and really caused me to write the book that we're talking about today. Number one, uh, God welcomed the confrontation. It was it was almost like he'd been waiting for it, Pat. And um, the first thing I would tell you today is I think the same thing is true for, for God today. I think he's waiting on us to run to him with these concerns that we have about our culture because he is interested in engaging them. Um, but then the second thing, and, and maybe maybe the more, more profound thing to that is when blame for being absent, God responds. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here. He said, uh, I've been here all along, and my, my fame and my power and my glory, they're ready to respond to the situations that you see. But I've been waiting on something, Habakkuk. I've been waiting on you because I created you to be the vessel of my fame. So if you're ready to go— I'm ready to go. And I would just tell you, I, I think I think we're at that moment today, Pat. There are a lot of issues in our world, and in very many ways our cities are literally on fire. And God wants to move in our culture, in our, in our world, in a tangible way. But he's waiting on the vessels that he created to be uh, the embodiment of his fame, to be ready to go. He's waiting on us to step forward just like Habakkuk did. So that's kind of the foundation of what the book lays out. Than Bennett is our guest. He's in Washington, D.C. Than, your book breaks down into four parts, uh, the proclamation, the legend, the knowledge, the request. Uh, tell us about part one, the proclamation. Yeah, those four parts, Pat, are uh, rooted in Habakkuk 3.2, which is at the end of Habakkuk's story. And maybe I'll just read the whole verse, and it made me make sense how why I broke it down into parts. Uh, Habakkuk finally became convinced that he was going to uh, honor God's call to step into this, this mission of carrying his fame. Here, here's the proclamation that Habakkuk made as a statement that he would do it. He said, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. And so part one is just that first proclamation, the statement of faith that he has heard of God's fame. Uh, He believes it, uh, and he is going to proclaim it into his culture. That obviously, uh, then you have to build on that foundation. But the proclamation path is the statement of faith that Habakkuk knew. And by the way, 
he makes this proclamation from a, from a, a point where he's not convinced. He's not yet convinced that God will meet him, but he's decided that if God is going to move, uh, he wants to be in that gap. He wants to meet God when he does move. So he proclaims in Habakkuk 3, 2, Lord, I have heard of your fame. By the way, then, if you could sit down and have lunch with Habakkuk today, <laughs> uh, tell me the first question you'd ask him. Oh, wow. Um, I think I would ask him what gave him either the courage or maybe the temerity. Because, you know, when I read the story, I'm not sure if it's a good or a bad thing when he first confronts God. But I guess I would, I would ask him what gave him the courage or the temerity to approach God with sort of the anger or the hostility that he did. Uh, because if you read through the Old Testament, I love the, especially the minor prophets, you get these uh, more obscure stories of people who were trying to follow God in very hard times. And Pat, you don't often come across a character like Habakkuk who um, was willing to confront God in this way. So I would think, I think I would ask him where he found the courage to confront God. Because I've, I've got to tell you, why, while I want to have reverence, Pat, while I want to be in awe of my God, I don't ever want to be hesitant to come into the presence of God, and that was something that Habakkuk uh, certainly uh, was not hesitant to do. So I think I would ask him where, where he found that courage. Well, let's get to the second part, first uh, part of the book, the proclamation. Part two is called The Legend. Uh, tell us about this, then. Sure. This is where, uh, in part two of that proclamation, he says, I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. And, and part two of the book starts with chapter five. It starts off with a chapter called uh, The Awe Factor. And, Pat, I try to break down uh, just how complex our God is. You know, I think a lot of times we think about him in terms that are very grand, very big, huge. You know, he created the galaxies, he created the universe. And that's certainly true. He is beyond big. But I think Maybe there's a couple of components of God that we spend less time thinking about. While he's beyond big, Pat, he's also uh, less than small. He's a God that has reduced himself down to the level where he uh, sent his son to sacrifice for each of us, and he knows the problems that exist on a human plane. Uh, unlike any other God of any other faith that you will see across civilization, he made himself small despite his grandness in order to be with us. Um, and then third, uh, that he's also incomprehensibly unknown. There is so much about our God that we can press in and learn. We will never reach the depths of it. So part two, uh, it, it talks about deepening our knowledge of God and having a relationship with him uh, that is growing more every day. And, you know, honestly, Pat, I think this is um, maybe the most important component of the book because uh, God wants to reach our world in tangible ways, and, and we see throughout Scripture that He's promised to do it. But the interesting thing is His perfect plan does not reach our world unless we are a part of it. His ultimate plan was to have relationship with us, and He called on us to have connections in two directions. One, of course, we need to be connected to Him. We need to know Him. We need to be intimate with Him. But we also need to be connected to our culture, and that is the way his fame and his power is supposed to, to meet the culture. If you think about just the very specific commandments, you know, I'll just take one, feed the hungry. Well, how do the hungry get a bite of food to eat? They get it uh, from us. Yes, it's God, God's provision for them, but that provision flows through us. And so in very, very many ways, Pat, we are the, the tangibility of God's fame through our culture. So um, that's what I try to explore in part two of the book. My guest is Stan Bennett. He's in Washington. His book, My Fame, His Fame. Why do you do a whole chapter on fame and famous? Why, why is that important? Yeah, I think because there's an obsession with fame in our world today, and I don't think really anybody would dispute it. It's um, something wrapped in 15 minutes of fame or visibility or notoriety. Um, and in fact, Madonna, one of the most famous people on the planet, at the height of her fame, Pat, she said she wouldn't be happy until she was famous like God. And so it's something like it's something that so many of us pursue. Um, but I, I think it's a bit of a two-edged sword for for us as followers of Jesus because we know that we're supposed to resist that type of self-centric fame. But Pat, I, I think it's fair to ask the question: Then why are we so universally drawn to it? And I argue in this book, and I think the Bible points to this conclusion, that we're 
drawn to fame because on a very foundational level, we were actually created for it. We were- My guest, Than Bennett. We've got another segment with Than. Stay with us right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Author Than Bennett is with us from Washington. The book, My Fame, His Fame. Before the break, Than, you were talking about fame. I think that you had some more to say. Yeah, I just, I argue in this book, Pat, that I actually think the Bible points to a conclusion that we were created for fame. We were hardwired for it. And I want to quickly say it's not the fame that immediately leaps to mind. It's not the one that's focused on me or on on ourself, but it's the fame that God promised to Abraham when he said he'd make him a great nation and the fame um, that he meant when he told Joshua that his fame would spread through the land. And then the one uh, that we already talked about in, in Habakkuk's story. And I think, Pat, it's probably summed up best through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43, when he, when God says, the people that I formed for myself, that they might proclaim my, my praise. You know, Pat, this life is not about us, but I believe, and I think the Bible confirms, that we were literally created for the purpose of gathering God's fame, amplifying his fame, and carrying it to a world in need. We were made for that fame. So, while we want to uh, reject the world-based fame, I think we were meant to be vessels for his, and we need to step forward and carry it. Then let's uh, just review now. We covered part one of your book, The Proclamation, part two, The Legend. Now we've gotten to the part three. It's simply called The Knowledge. Uh, what, what's going on here? Yeah, this is, this is a call uh, to be sincere in our pursuit of understanding the character and the face of God. You know, so so much of who God is, we are going to have to take by faith. There's going to be a gap in our understanding until we're on the uh, eternal side of this world. But, Pat, we still have an obligation and a duty and really an exciting opportunity to pursue a knowledge of who God is and what He's called us to. And so this part of the book, um, it really encourages uh, us to engage in a rigorous pursuit of that understanding. Uh, this is this is more of that head knowledge. Ultimately, the, the book calls us into a, a heart knowledge of Him and a, a service-based uh, life committed to Him. Uh, but this part of the book talks about uh, really understanding who God is. And uh, maybe if I would, Pat, if, if people are going to read the book, I would point them to the last chapter of this section, this chapter 12, uh, talking about the very real power of God and how we have an opportunity uh, to channel that and how we might be afraid of it at, at times. Uh, but really, it's a missed opportunity if we don't decide to step in and be uh, vessels that carry that power. And that brings us to part four, and this is called the request. Uh, explain that to us. Yeah, sure. This is the very end of that statement in Habakkuk 3 2 that we talked about at the beginning of the broadcast, uh, where Habakkuk asked God to repeat them, and by them he's talking about the mighty acts of God. Repeat them in our day, in our time make them known, in wrath remember mercy. And uh, Pat, you know, I think so many of us, myself certainly included, I would put myself at the front of this line, we say that we want the awesome power of God, the mighty acts of God to be uh, re-revealed, to be repeated in our time. Uh, but then when the ultimate time comes and when God wants us to play a role in that, uh, we're not quite so sure. We're a little intimidated by that power. And so uh, this part of the book is an encouragement for us to play a role in that and for us to move from a place of saying, I believe, it, it's good to say I believe, Pat, but to move to a place of actually calling it out and saying, do it again, God, and then actually moving from a place of saying, do it again, God, to saying, do it again, God, and use me. So this request is a call for readers to, yes, call God into our culture, but then embrace this understanding that when God shows up, He's going to have a very specific and central role for us to play and for us to be willing to obey uh, when He calls us to that. Then, what was Habakkuk's greatest strength as a leader? That's a good question. I, I really think it was his willingness to go 
directly to God and press his concerns. You know, uh, maybe maybe I would tell uh, just a very quick story in answer to that question, Pat, and I think it's going to probably tie into something that you're passionate about, given your, your family's background. But um, I am so often consumed by what I am called to do, how I am called to act. And a lot of this book is about that. But Habakkuk gives us an example of how we need to be attached to God if we are going to be able to support the actions uh, that he has called us to do. And our families had the amazing privilege recently of partnering with an adoption agency to provide care for newborns who are headed to an adoptive family. And I, I know you know what this is all about, but Pat, as we were going through the training for that, we learned how critical it is for newborns to form the ability to attach, to bond. And we learned that uh, children who are neglected can actually fare even worse than those who are abused because they never form the ability uh, to attach. And the researcher told us when we were taking this training, Pat, something that I will never forget. She told us attachment is what fuels all the other processes of the brain. And as I sat in that training, I thought, well, of course it does, because we were designed to attach to our Creator, to abide in Him. And it's that attachment that forms the foundation of and, and really that fuels all the things that we're called to do. That's the way that we can impact our world, Pat. We've got to first attach to Him before we can do anything of real value. And I would, I would tell you, I think that's what Habakkuk models. Um, yes, in the end, he's called to do something. But first he goes to God and says, I need to know you, I want to know that you're real, and I want you to show your power to me. So I think I, think I would tell you that, I, that that is the strongest uh, characteristic as a leader. I, I want you to talk for a minute, then about the atmosphere in Washington, D.C. these mm. days. Um, what, what are you sensing? What are you feeling? You know, there is a, there's a real class of, ideas, Pat, and a, I, I think a more division than we have ever seen before. You know, I would just I'd maybe zoom out a little bit and tell you that one of the strengths of our republic has always been the idea that we would allow ideas of differing perspectives to be aired. We would allow for free and fair debate, and then the ideas with the best merit would be the ones that we would choose and the ones that would rise to the top and the ones that would actually uh, take root. And uh, Pat, I think that idea is slipping a little bit now. I think we um, uh, we see an atmosphere where there's more focus on um, the argument, on the grasp on power, and on, on the defeat of those who we see uh, as being in the other camp, and less of a focus on sincere debate and sincere uh, testing of ideas. And I would tell you, we, we're, we desperately need to come out of that. Uh, I I have very strong views on the best ways to govern. There are ideas that I put out there uh, very regularly. Uh, but, Pat, in the end, if our republic is going to survive, it's going to have, we're going to have to return to the idea that ideas are going to be weighed on their merit rather than just on the, uh, the, the level of the volume of which they're voiced. So I would confess to you I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about the direction of the tone of the debate in our country, and I think it's imperative on those of uh, those of, of us as people of faith uh, to play a central role in turning that around. How do you think the evangel uh, the evangelical community um, feels today uh, about Donald Trump? Well, I think the polls will show you that they are by and large uh, supportive of him, mainly for the policies uh, that he's been able to achieve and. Um, you know, one of the one of the examples that I give the most frequently is the Department of Health and Human Services, under his guidance, uh, defines life as beginning at conception and builds their programs around that idea. And I think that's something that finds great support. I do think you find some concern about uh, maybe the tone in which he carries some of it out. But, you know, Pat, my admonition to people of faith, regardless of how they feel about the president, is really just a, a reminder to be like Daniel, who, who served under kings and leadership of all different kinds, some of which he agreed with and some of which he didn't. And he was always focused on seeking the welfare of the leaders and the city in which he, I'm going to say, abided. But, Pat, he was in exile uh, in Babylon, and so he, but yet he continued to seek the welfare of the city. And it was only clear in hindsight which of those kings and which of those leaders were uh, were honorable and which were not. And so I would just encourage 
the people listening to your broadcast, regardless of how they feel about the president, that their task is essentially the same. It's to seek the welfare of this country, the city in which they live, and, and ultimately to lift its leaders up in prayer. Than Bennett is our guest, author of My Fame, His Fame. Tell me about Mark Batterson, your pastor. <laughs> I love Mark Batterson. He's been my pastor for about 20 years now. We started attending his church when there were less than 100 people there, and uh, God has blessed his ministry in a big way. But um, I would tell you, Pat, he's a big reason that I'm writing. For, for uh, almost 15 years, God had been telling me to write, and I had been resisting because I was a public policy professional. And on April 19th, 2015, Pastor Mark gave a message titled, One Little Yes, and it was a message that I felt God was speaking directly uh, to me in. Uh, he was asking me to take one little yes and finally obey the call uh, to write. Uh, I did that in response to Pastor Mark's message. We're about five years later now, and I've I've written three books, uh, two of which have published. The first one did not publish, but two of which have published, and the second of which we're talking about today. So you asked me about Mark. I would tell you that is a faithful servant of Jesus Christ, and he has been uh, faithfully obedient in the same direction for a long time now, and uh, I'm privileged to call him one of my mentors. What kind of Bible teaching, Bible studies go on uh, within the ranks of uh, government? Uh, I tell you what, more than you would imagine, Mm -hmm. um, from all different denominations, from all different walks of life, in the halls of Congress, in the shadow of the Capitol, um, there are people of faith meeting across uh, partisan lines, by the way. You do not see a whole lot of bipartisan participation in Washington, D.C., usually, but in in the in the place of seeking God and in the place of uh, prayerfully seeking His face, you definitely uh, do see that. I've been a part of a number of them uh, over the years, and and actually right now um, we are participating in a in a daily online prayer meeting through our church uh, because of the the COVID pandemic that's pre- preventing the in person gathering. Uh, we're gathering in the spirit of Second Chronicles seven fourteen, which calls on His people to humbly seek. Uh, his face. And uh, Pat, I, I think, um, well, you might not be surprised, but I think your listeners would be surprised at how many people here really are seeking the face of God and really are walking in what it means to uh, live out his calling in a very tangible place. I, you know, we have an obligation to engage a republic of this power and this influence around the world, Pat. And fortunately, there are a lot of people here that are, that are heeding that call. What are your thoughts on Mike Pence? I know Mike Pence personally. I've known him for a couple of decades. Uh, He is a man of God. He he fervently wants to do God's will. Um, He and his wife, Karen, are um, faithful servants, I would call them. I, I think Mike is a great example of what it looks like when you achieve a tremendous platform, when you achieve tremendous visibility, and yet you are able to walk in humility in it. Um, I I think regardless of uh, whether one, um, let me put it this way, I think virtually everyone in this town who knows Mike, whether they agree with his politics or they don't, they respect him as a sincere believer and as a good friend. And so I think Mike is is a great example of what it means to be a public servant. Why do you think Donald Trump picked him? Um, I think he saw that, quite honestly. Um, you know, for uh, for all of the all of the president's strengths, I think he needed someone uh, by his side who was maybe uh, able to navigate some of those more nuanced situations. And I think Mike Pence uh, is able to do that in, uh, for both the people of faith, and then also uh, he had long roots here in this town. He knew how to engage the mechanisms of government while maybe uh, the president was, at least at that time, was newer to the game. Obviously, he's been here for four years now, but I think it complemented uh, his set of strengths very well. He, I think, I think uh, Mike brought a, a separate set of strengths to the table. I've got 30 seconds left, uh, Than. Uh, uh, tell me about your book and why people should read it in 30 seconds. 
Sure. It's called My Fame, His Fame. I'll give you one very simple reason, because uh, even though God uh, sent Moses to do great works, there was a time when God wanted to kill Moses, and he wanted to kill Moses because Moses wanted God to send someone else. I would tell your listeners, Pat, there is no one else. God wants to send each of them, and it's their duty, their mission, and their great privilege and calling uh, to, to, to meet that calling. I think you'll find that mission in this book. Than Bennett has been our guest. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5 The Word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5 The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Dan Bennett, our guest in that first segment, talking about his book, My Fame, His Fame. We're joined by Dr. Michael Brown from Concord, North Carolina. His new book is out, Evangelicals at the Crossroads, Will We Pass the Trump Test? Michael, how are you? Thanks for joining me. Yeah, doing well. Crazy days, but great to be on the radio, huh? Oh, yes, yes. And we're, uh, we're all private here and masked up, and we're, we're behaving and playing by the rules, Doc. So tell me about your book. What, what brought this about? Well, I felt this was such an urgent matter to address. Uh, 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump and really helped him get into the White House. He has remained very friendly with evangelicals of all backgrounds and ethnicities. He, in many ways, has done more for evangelical causes than any president we've had. On the other hand, the way he conducts himself has probably done more to undo the evangelical cause than any president we've had. And we have massive choices come November between Joe Biden and the Democrats and Donald Trump and the Republicans. We have massive choices in terms of our witness as followers of Jesus to a watching world. So we've really got to get this right. How do we relate to Donald Trump? How do we vote? There's so many issues involved. Uh, and and I, write, I write op-eds, normally one op-ed a day, and I do my own radio show an hour a day. But I thought, you know, I, I've got to really do the hard work, really do the research, put everything together in book form. So evangelicals, wherever they stand, loving Trump, hating Trump, in between, they can read this. Others who even aren't evangelicals can read, can get understanding, and then can make intelligent choices and do the right thing, not just about voting, but about how we live and conduct ourselves before a watching world. Michael, tell us about Chapter 1, the enigma of Donald Trump and the quandary of evangelicals. Yeah, so here's where I flesh out both sides of kind of an argument between a never-Trumper and an always-Trumper. And and try to lay out why Donald Trump is such an unusual figure, because we're used to him being president, right? It's been all these years now. But if you remember when he said he was running for a president, no one took it seriously, Republican candidate. And you think of all the candidates we had, from Ted Cruz to Marco Rubio to, to Mike Huckabee to, to Jeb Bush, to, you know, 16 candidates, Ben Carson, you know, all these different people that we could have voted for. Why Donald Trump? Well, evangelicals, we are the, uh, the, the character counts party. We are the morality matters party. I have a whole chapter about that we can get to. But that's who we are. And we would not take this playboy, narcissist, billionaire who made his money with casinos and strip clubs and, and all of this, who had been a Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican. We wouldn't have picked him to be our poster boy for the pro-life movement you know, or for religious liberty or things like that. And he's done so much good on the one hand that's commendable and when you think of previous leaders that evangelicals helped elect say like a ronald reagan or george w bush once they're in the white house that the relationship with evangelicals was not the same as it was before but it's been the opposite with trump he's he's been steady he's got a guy like mike pence at his side so that's all that's wonderful on the one hand but then on the other hand the way he has savaged other people the way he can be so juvenile. I mean, he can give the great speech on Mount Rushmore, and it's, it's patriotic and it's inspirational. It's great for civil rights. And then the next day, go after Bubba Wallace and NASCAR, thinking, what are you doing? And to the extent we're associated with him, we look bad. I just talked to a colleague of mine 
who does ministry in Australia. He does Jewish outreach in Australia. And he told me that their Christian witness in Australia has been hurt by evangelical support for Trump in America. And yet, if we look at the choices, it was Trump versus Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Who are we going to vote for? So that's, that's the enigma of Trump. That's the quandary of evangelicals. And I've got some quotes in the book that are very intense, I mean, from either side, basically saying, if you love Jesus, you must vote for Trump. If you love Jesus, you can't vote for Trump. Mm. How in the world do we sort this out? Let's go to your second topic. Since when was loyalty to Trump the dividing line for Christians? Question mark. Yeah, so in that chapter, I, I get into the fact that we have gotten hypersensitive over Donald Trump. And, and what's happened is this. Basically, because he's kept his promises to evangelicals and because he's fought for our cause, we now feel the need to defend him. And we have become apologists for the president. And, and yes, it, there is the other side that says you can't be a Christian and vote for him. But I'll hear from people on social media. We, we reach millions of people on social media through our ministry. And, and I'll regularly see people defending him in such a way that if you dare say one word critical of Donald Trump, you're criticizing God's anointed. There's something the matter with you. And to me, this is, this is a fundamental error here. Yes, I voted from in 2016 and plan to, to vote from this year. But to make this the deciding factor, and I'll, I'll publicly say if he says something I don't like, I wish he didn't say that. Yeah, he has my vote, but I wish he didn't say that. And people attack him. You can't speak against him. You can't, you can't criticize the president. Where, where does this come from? Since when is this a mark of our loyalty to the Lord? So that's what I cover in the second chapter. Now let's move to topic number three. Have we failed the love test? What does that mean? Yes. Uh, the, the, the question is this. Have we divided over Donald Trump within the church to the point that we savage each other, attack each other, almost treat one another the way he treats his opponents? In that chapter, and it's kind of a devastating chapter to, to read, I go through verse after verse after verse from the New Testament as to how we are to conduct ourselves with one another. Uh, the love that we are to show, the respect, the honor, the humility, the grace, the gentleness, one after another, after another, after another. And then I look at the way we treat each other when it comes to Donald Trump. Uh, I've had Christians call my radio show and say their family has divided over it. They, they can't have a meal, a family meal, and bring up his name without having massive conflict. So we have failed the love test. You know, the subtitle of my book, Will We Pass the Trump Test, has two sides to it. Uh, one side is, uh, can we vote for him without selling our soul? The other side is, can we differ about Donald Trump while still uniting around Jesus? And, and thus far, we've done a terrible job of it. And, and right now, the world is so confused. People are so anxious, fearful, uncertain about the future. They need the voice and witness of the church. So, so we've really got to get it together, unite around Jesus, and shine before the world. Thus far, Trump has deeply divided the church, and we have not been able to overcome that. Let's move to topic number four. My guest is Dr. Michael Brown from North Carolina. Uh, the name of the book, Evangelicals at the Crossroads. Does character still count and does morality still matter? That's topic number four, Michael. Yes. So in this chapter, Pat, I look back at how evangelical leaders looked at President Bill Clinton and other leaders whose morality we question. Now, I understand that the issue was Bill Clinton in the White House as an adulterer, and no one has accused Donald Trump of, of sexual impropriety in the White House like JFK was guilty of, or Bill Clinton was. You know, it's his past, and then it, the way he, he conducts himself. But it's really devastating to read in the past the way we said morality is so important, integrity is so important, character is so important. And, and look, that's the way I felt about Donald Trump during the primaries. That's a strong reason that I rejected him. I thought his lack of character. So we have been called hypocrites before a watching world because it seems like the ones who were saying character counts, morality matters, now when it comes to Donald Trump, we're saying, well, it doesn't matter that much because, you know, we're dealing with pro-life issues. It doesn't matter that much because we're dealing with tyrannical China and, and so on. So 
that's that's why I get into are we being hypocrites? And I, I think there are two things that we overlook. One is that character is also displayed in keeping 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 one's word, even under pressure. The character is displayed when you make a promise to do something, and come hell or high water, you do it. Trump has been exceptional in keeping his word on promise after promise after promise in ways that we're not used to with a politician. That's an extreme display of character that we have to appreciate and say, hey, if you care about the baby in the womb, that's character. If you care about persecuted Christians in other parts of the world under radical Islam, that's character also. If you care about the condition of the inner cities, that's character. On the flip side, his character failures, his, his immaturity, his lying have cost and hurt him. So that's, that's a situation. We must say, I don't like his behavior. I appreciate his policies. And, and we have to say he's done a lot of good, but there's been collateral damage because character does count and morality does matter. So where he's been strong, it's been exceptional. Where he's been weak, it's been harmful. And that's the mixture of Donald Trump that we just have to deal with. Uh, Dr. Michael Brown is our guest. Michael, next topic. The cult of Trump versus Trump derangement syndrome. What does that mean? Yeah, so I, I did a tremendous amount of reading and study in writing this book and read articles, books that said that, that Trump is a cult leader, that Trump knows how to push the right buttons to manipulate people so that they now follow him in a cult-like way. And you remember his famous quote from the primaries, I could walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and, and people would still follow me. And on the one hand, it's frighteningly true. And the question is, how far would he go or could he go before some of his followers stop following him? So I examine that to ask if there really is a cult of Trump, but then point out that when Trump has done things like pulled our troops from Syria and evangelical leaders didn't like that, they immediately spoke out. They immediately spoke up, and, and, and they warned him publicly. And I know others that have spoken very plainly to him privately and urged him to act differently and do things differently. So what it is is he knows how to push the right buttons, but it's not that he's a cult leader. And on the flip side, what you have is this Trump derangement syndrome where he seems to drive people mad that they they no longer behave themselves like decent people. I've watched journalists that were experienced long-term journalists, and I flipped the TV on. I thought, they're acting like little children. And, and all they can talk about is Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump. And, and then I'll read books by, by trained scholars, and they're going through the past and history and all this, and it's all excellent. And then when they start talking about Trump, they sound petty, they sound immature. So it, it's that Trump brings things out of people. And it's not so much that there's a cult of Trump, although some follow him in a cult-like way. It's, it's more that he brings things out of people, and, and it's really scary to see what he's brought out. And again, some of the quotes in these chapters are, are mind-boggling. Did God uniquely raise up Donald Trump? That's your sixth topic. There were prophecies before Trump was even running for president that God was going to raise him up as president. And then during the primary, there were prophecies that he would be raised up by God. There was an uproar of him. What? Are you crazy? You can't. No, that can't be. Just Donald Trump, but there was a parallel pointed to with King Cyrus in Isaiah 44 and 45. Cyrus was a, an idol-worshipping pagan king. But rather than crush the exiles in his empire, he restored them to their home countries. And he said, hey, build the temple to your gods and pray for me. And he did that for the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And God said through Isaiah, I raised you up even though you don't know me. And, and I actually quote from Cyrus's own words from 539 in what's called the Cyrus Cylinder, where he's giving praise to the Babylonian god Marduk and speaking of himself as the king of kings. He did not know the true God, yet God used him. And when you look at Trump on Election Day, 1% chance of being elected, according to some major polls. Mm. Then you look at these prophecies, I say, yes, he was uniquely raised up. It doesn't mean 
that everything he does is good. It doesn't mean that he can't be questioned. It doesn't mean that God did not raise him up for multiple purposes. But I see in a unique and unusual way God's sovereign hand in raising up Trump. And and the quotes from the Cyrus Cylinder are really eye-opening as well. My guest is Dr. Michael Brown. We've got another segment with him talking about his book, Evangelicals at the Crossroads. You are listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. And please visit that website. We're trying to bring baseball to Orlando, orlandodreamers.com. Go up there and check it out. We'll be back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Dr. Michael Brown is our guest. We're talking about his new book, Evangelicals at the Crossroads, Will We Pass the Trump Test? Michael, we've arrived at topic number seven. Does a vote for Trump really hurt our witness? Uh, It can. If we don't conduct ourselves properly, it can. Uh, Because to the extent we're associated with Trump, two things happen. One, when he says and does something bad, we look bad. Unless we say, boy, I don't like that. I don't agree with that. But here's why I voted for him. The other thing is... The left-wing media attacks him in such ways. Every day he's a racist, white supremacist, xenophobic bigot. He's a new Hitler and so on. They inflame emotions against Trump. So he can be his own worst enemy. But then you add in this other element where, where Trump is, is evil, evil, evil. And, it, and if someone says, well, you voted for him, I'm not even going to talk to you. What we have to do is overcome that. What we have to do is say, hey, watch my life. This is who I am. This is my testimony. This is my life. This is why I believe what I believe. And talk to them on that score. And and then ask questions. Say, okay, if these issues are important to me, which person would, would, would be the one I vote for? Try to reason and get people to understand. But I know for a fact, I, I mentioned in the first segment, a friend in Australia saying that their witness has been hurt by evangelical support of Trump in America. I'm sure the left-wing media there has helped push that narrative. But I, I had a friend I, I went to school with as, as a kid, elementary school on Long Island, and he was still a Facebook friend. We weren't close, but even though I'm conservative and my views are different and he's more of a liberal New York Jew, we've stayed in touch a little bit and, and every so often, you know, exchange nice words. And, and uh, he just got so upset with me one day for, for saying something positive about Trump, he, he unfriended me. And I thought, wow, we've known each other since we were like six or seven years old and uh, uh, not close friends, you know, in, in recent years, but we've known each other. So it, it is a problem. And, and what we have to do is not change our vote based on that, but be all the more intentional in putting Jesus first and putting love first and putting outreach first and putting support for Trump second. Uh, let's get to the eighth topic. Did we vote our pocketbook or our principles, you ask? This is a a concern that Ben Howe raised in his book, Immoral Majority. Ben is an evangelical and also a never-Trumper. And he said that if evangelicals voted for Trump because of abortion, if they voted for Trump because of religious liberties, if they voted for Trump because of some other moral issue like that, then he could have understood it. But when polls came out, even among evangelicals, Far and away, the number one issue for them was the economy. And to him, that seemed immoral. That it's one thing to say, hey, look, I don't like Donald Trump's morals and his behavior in different ways. However, because we're fighting for the life of the unborn, he's our better choice. Ben on my own radio show said, yeah, I could accept that, but not to vote from just so you can have a better economy. Well, all I know is I have never met an evangelical. Out of all those that I know and interact with, and out of the many, many, many hundreds of thousands that I have polled online and opened up my radio show to, I have not yet met one who said the main reason I voted for Donald Trump was the economy. I don't know if it's the way questions were asked in polls or who was actually reached or just the circle of evangelicals that I live with and work with, 
But everyone that I know voted from primarily pro-life, court appointees, religious liberty standing with Israel, and they thought he'd do a better job on the economy, but that was way down the list. Now, there's something else to it, though, that a healthy economy is also a moral issue. In other words, people suffer in an unhealthy economy, the poor in particular. They don't get health care they need. Other things like that can happen. So you can vote for, the, for a good economy for moral reasons. But I do not believe, despite what some polls have said, that the main reason evangelicals voted for Trump was economic. Now let's get to this topic. Responding to a passionate plea from progressive Christians. What's that all about? There was a major letter written and a website put together by Christian leaders, some of whom were former evangelicals, others who identified as progressive Christians, urging, pleading with evangelical leaders to separate themselves from Donald Trump, urging evangelical leaders to uh, renounce him, denounce him, and say we're done with Donald Trump so as not to destroy our our Christian witness. So I take a whole chapter to interact with them and to go through their arguments and to basically say, hey, look, i got to be candid. Some of the very people signing here are, are not pro-life. Some of the people signing here are, are for gay, quote, marriage and things like that. Why in the world would I be concerned about their view on how a Christian should live? And then again, you boil it down to alternatives. So I respond to that, I take a whole chapter to respond to their arguments. All right, now let's move to a very interesting uh, chapter. What would Bonhoeffer do? The International Bonhoeffer Society has come out very, very strongly against Trump. They have said that the evangelical support of Trump is similar to the evangelical, uh, the German, uh, the Lutheran support of, of Hitler, or even Catholic support of Hitler as he was coming into power and, and rising up. And they feel that on all the moral issues important to Bonhoeffer, that that uh, Trump is on is on the wrong side, and they too have called for evangelicals to stop supporting Trump. So, again, a major organization. Uh, my friend Eric McAxis, who wrote the the well-known best-selling biography on Bonhoeffer, he's a strong Trump supporter. I said, well, those guys could have it out among themselves, but. What I do is, again, I go through the major moral issues. I I point to ones that I think Bonhoeffer would would be concerned about, like pro-life, because one of the big reasons he risked his life and lost his life was for the sake of the Jewish people, who were not being treated as equal humans and and who were being destroyed by the Nazis. But I also destroy this idea that evangelical support for Trump can be likened to German Christian support for Hitler. I look at the parallels, I look at the issues, and I, I demolish that idea. So I do respond to, to the Bonhoeffer Society thoroughly. What about the shot heard around the evangelical world? What's that? What does that mean? Mark Galley was uh, editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, mm. flagship evangelical publication. And he wrote an editorial last year say, during the impeachment hearings saying that Trump should be removed and evangelicals should call for his removal. It was a shocker. For Christianity Today, they had been leaning left, but I mean, this is the, the magazine Billy Graham founded. And Franklin Graham is a very strong Trump supporter. In fact, Franklin said that his father voted for Trump. So uh, it, it, it was an unbelievable firestorm, the most controversial essay in the history of the magazine. And it, it generated, I believe, over two hundred responses, as you can imagine that, and, you know, articles. And, and so what I do is I, I go through the arguments there, and once again, because this is, this is within our own house, evangelicals against evangelicals, I raise the issues, I look at them, I, I say I'm glad Galley got, his, got this out because he speaks for many other evangelicals who cannot understand how we can possibly support Trump, but then once again, I respond, and I lay out how others have responded to galleys. So the goal in this book is to present both sides, but then to give a rational and clear response to the criticisms and the concerns. Um, we've got about 30 or 40 seconds left. How do you think Trump can takes this bashing in the media 
every single day. New York Times, television. Uh, does he? Does it affect him? I'm, I'm sure it does, and he can be thin-skinned, but he fights back. I, I believe he likes the controversy. Mm-hmm. That as much as it's it's a constant drain, I believe that hey, he's he's fueled off of this. It's part of what he is. There's a, a whole chapter where I get into that how he's a fighter and that's who he is. And he's been called the great disruptor. Someone said every day he wakes up and says, "What can I disrupt?" So. We navigate the end of the book, Pat. We navigate exactly what we must do as evangelicals to pass the Trump test. And, and I think if it's a critical election in many ways, but even more critical, our testimony before the world. We've got to shine. Mike, I've got um, a request. There's still a good meaty part of this book left. And I, I'd love to reschedule you at some point, um, you know, down the road and, and so we can finish it. Uh, might we uh, approach that? Absolutely, with joy. I'd love, love to speak to your listeners some more. Dr. Michael Brown, our guest, we've got more. Well, we don't have more. We've wrapped it up. But we've got a wrap-up uh, in just a minute. Alan Dempsey is waving at me. Uh, we've got a one-minute wrap-up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay right with us. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word. Are you looking for a job? Attend the Central Florida Job Fair where you'll find companies waiting to meet you. This job fair is taking place August 5th from noon until 4 p.m. at the Central Florida Fair Expo Park on West Colonial Drive in Orlando. Masks and social distancing will be expected. Free parking and free admission for all job seekers. Professional dress is required and no children, please. Get registration and attendance information online with the Central Florida Employment Council at CFEC.org. And then and don't miss the job fair on August 5th. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Thanks so much for joining us, folks, here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, our guest in the first segment, Than Bennett uh, from Washington, D.C., talking about his book, My Fame, His Fame. And then we went to Concord, North Carolina, Dr. Michael Brown evangelicals at the crossroads. I've got two books out. Uh, I'd like you to check them out. Character Carved in Stone and Lead Like Walt, meaning Walt Disney. Uh, So go up to Amazon and check them out or or to your local bookstore and uh, see what you think of them. I'd, uh, I'd love to hear from you about that. In the meantime, we have a website. We're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando. So go up to OrlandoDreamers.com. OrlandoDreamers.com and just say, yes, good idea. Love to have Major League Baseball in Orlando. We're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Have a great week ahead. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time, where faith comes by hearing. The new AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word.